Hey, hello, friends, and uh, welcome to an exciting public shiur on the on the Safari approach to Tanakh in comparison to the Ashkenazi approach. Uh, for those who are new, uh, welcome to the Chavura. We are a physical and virtual Bet Midrash committed to cutting-edge Torah inspired by the Sephardi approach. I highly recommend all to join, and um, our curriculum, our new curriculum, will be announced in June, so stay tuned for that, and uh, make sure to hop on and enjoy all of the amazing uh, content we are putting out. Um, our speaker today, we have the privilege and honor of hearing from Rabbi Joshua Maruf. Uh, the Chacham received Semicha from Yeshiva Benetura in Farakway, New York, and has a master's in educational psychology from SUNY. Uh, for seven years prior to making Aliyah, he served as one of the rabbis of the Iranian Mashadi community in Great New York and as head of their Sephardic Bet Midrash. He currently resides in Karmek Gat, Israel, with his wife Ilana and their six children. His lectures, shurim, and writings can be found online, and uh, we'll post a link um, in the chat box. Um, if you have any questions, you can raise your hand. Uh, God willing, there'll be time for questions at the end. Um, our classes are recorded and are available on our website, uh, so make sure to catch that at the end. And uh, thank you, everyone, for joining. Chacham, uh, it is a privilege and pleasure to have you, and uh, the floor is yours. Okay. So... Um... We are, uh, our topic, uh, the topic that we, we decided to, uh, to start our, uh, uh, this uh, shiur with, uh, hopefully, Bezrat Hashem, in the future, there will be uh, additional, uh, additional installments of shiurim. So there was a discussion of what might be a good point of departure for, uh, for some learning together. Since I'm new to the group, I've been following the group from a distance, uh, one might say, for some time. But uh, I hadn't been uh, directly involved in terms of giving any classes until now. And so uh, just, you know, I noticed that you have a lot of very distinguished scholars and experts in all kinds of subjects uh, giving the classes generally. I'm not really uh, a scholar or an expert in anything, but I'm hoping, you know, I've spent the last 30 years or so uh, mainly thinking about uh, these issues that we're going to discuss. So hopefully quantity will make up for quality and it will be a worthwhile uh, journey. The, um, the question of what is the difference really between uh, the Sephardic approach to, uh, to, to the interpretation of Mikra, to the interpretation of Torah Shebikhtav, uh, the written Torah versus the Ashkenazi approach. It's a very broad question to try to, uh, to digest in a simple manner in one shiur. So what I, would, what I would like to do, I'm gonna give a brief sort of uh, a sketch of the subject. And then what I want to spend hopefully the bulk of the time on is a particular example that hopefully will uh, illuminate for us uh, some of these ideas. Uh, when we think about Sephardic versus Ashkenazi parshanut, if we're talking about the interpretation of Torah from a Sephardic perspective versus an Ashkenazi perspective, I think that the, the classic, of course, the classic and most famous uh, commentator uh, who is Ashkenazi, uh, is going to be Rashi, of course. Most of the commentators, even those who made it into the Mikra'ot Gedolot, who were fortunate enough to be, uh, uh, you know, made uh, the uh, most commonly studied commentators are mostly Svaradim, actually. Uh, his, you know, in, they're, they're mostly either Svaradi or in the case of Sephorno Italian. Um, so that, that's an interesting historical, uh, historical fact. But obviously, the most famous Ashkenazi commentator is Rashi. He's the one who's the most often cited. He's the most often cited, probably, commentator overall. 
um, when it comes to Tanakh, particularly to Chumash. And so we often find ourselves contrasting the Parshanut of Rashi with the Parshanut of other Mepharshim when we talk about the Ashkenazi versus Sephardic. I don't want to necessarily do that. Um, I think that the right approach, personally, I think the right approach is to be open-minded to all commentators and to all sources. I don't believe that it's the, that that it's advisable to restrict ourselves to uh, uh, to particular commentators and to exclude the study or consideration of the opinions of others. Uh, especially since I think that we can all agree that uh, regardless of their orientation, regardless of their uh, ethnic background, regardless of their minhagim, regardless of what school of thought they hail from, they're certainly greater and more advanced and wiser and uh, uh, than any of us today. And therefore we have much to learn from them. I think we can all agree upon that and therefore be in a position of uh, uh, willingness and open-mindedness to, uh, to gain from their insight. So there's nothing against Rashi or any Ashkenazi commentary uh, or commentator uh, intended by this, but we're just sketching differences between the two approaches. And I'd like to illustrate it maybe with a few brief examples using a few um, well-known personalities from the world of Parshanut and then get into the uh, what I consider to be an excellent example of really creative and maybe a little bit controversial uh, Sephardic parshanut. And I, you know, I, it was recommended actually by one of my uh, one of the the folks that I learned together with in one of my chats, one of my learning chats, uh, as an example. And as and because uh, I sort of threw out the possibility, I threw out the uh, the question to the group: What kind of example do you think might um, might interest uh, people who are learning with me for the first time? And and this was a suggestion from them. Uh, but so if you don't like it, uh, I'll give you their name and you can track them down and uh, you can uh, harass them. Uh, but uh, hopefully you'll, you'll appreciate it. The, um, well, I'd like to use as an example of Sephardic commentators, uh, two commentators who are found in the Mikot Gedolot, the standard Mikot Gedolot, which are of course the Ramban, who may be second to, the Ramban, to, to Rashi in terms of the frequency with which he is cited in uh, other literature. And of course, Ibn Ezra. Now they're very different, but um, I find them both to have a commonality in the way that they approach uh, they approach the text. And this commonality is uh, reflective of, or um, it, it, it definitely exemplifies something about the Sephardic approach to understanding Tuashibikhtav. If we were to characterize what really differentiates, let's say, those of us who have some experience of the Ramban's commentary versus Rashi, one of the things that I think strikes us first is that Rashi comments on almost every word. So almost every word Rashi has an explanation or an angle or something to, uh, to elaborate upon or something to clarify or even something to add from Midrashim that he might cite and so on. He has something to say about almost every word in almost every pasuk. That's not always true, but it's mostly true. Whereas if you look at the Ramban, for example, or even Ibn Ezra, they do zero in on particular key terms that they want to elucidate, but they fo their focus is on the broad themes of the stories or the chapters or the sections of Torah that they are, uh, that they're discussing. And I think this is actually one of the signature features 
of Sephardic Parshanut as distinct from Ashkenazi Parshanut in terms of its style. Now we'll get into maybe in a little bit why that difference is there. What, what maybe, what is that difference indicative of at a deeper level? But just in terms of this, uh, of a descriptive, uh, at the descriptive level, I think that this distinction is seen, that the Ramban won't comment on every pasuk. Ibn Ezra will not comment on every uh, word, but will kind of sketch for you, present to you a theme, a principle, an idea, something that sets the stage for you to understand a section of the Torah or a story of the Torah or a mitzvah of the Torah, and then kind of leave you to um, put the details uh, into a framework that's now been provided. I'll give you a, just off the top of my head a random example that I'm thinking of. Ibn Ezra is really even the master of this, but it's true of the Ramban as well that he does this. Um, that the Ibn Ezra, for instance, will say to you, there's a story we know of Yosef being sold by his brothers into slavery. And then immediately after that, we read of the story of Yehuda, who is, uh, who, and, this, and the drama in his family with his sons dying and Tamar and Yehuda, etc. And Ibn Ezra makes a very interesting comment. And then right after, right after that story of Yehuda, we read the story of Yosef and Potiphar's wife and how Yosef and, uh, you know, ends up in jail as a result of his uh, resisting the advances of Potiphar's wife. Now, Ibn Ezra points out there that the, he says the reason for the juxtaposition of these two stories, why do you have the story of Yehuda and the story of Yosef uh, in, in juxtaposition? He says the reason is because Yosef resisted the temptations of the flesh. He resisted the temptation of Potiphar's wife, even though, think about it, he's a teenager, let's say, you know, not to, not to speak flippantly about a great Sadiq, but he's a teenager with, you know, raging hormones, let's say, you know, he's, a, he's at the age where guys get interested in girls and, you know, he's, he's alone and he's away from his family. So he's got the emotional lonely, he's got all of these different factors, and yet he resists the temptation to get involved with Potiphar's wife, whereas Yehuda, after the death of his wife, is walking down the street and sees a woman that he thinks is a woman of ill repute and, you know, is immediately drawn to her and is even willing to take substantial risks to have an evening with her, to have a, uh, to have, you know, a, a one night stand with this woman who is a stranger to him. And so the Ibn Ezra says it's to point out the difference between the, the righteousness of Yosef, that he is, um, withstands the uh, temptation and is able to uh, resist temptation as opposed to Yehuda who falls victim to, victim to temptation. That's what the Ibn Ezra says about it. Okay, that's not all he says about the two stories. He, of course, comments here and there on different sukim, but he gives you a kind of a framework. Now, what do you do with that framework? What you do with that framework is you unpack it and you say, hey, you know, why is that an important point to highlight? Why did the Ibn Ezra give you just that observation? He's giving you that observation because he's trying to show you a lesson. These are the two leaders, Yehuda and Yosef. These are the two individuals who arise, later arise as leaders of the family and leaders of, let's say, the emergent Am Yisrael. And what does it show you? What is Yosef's uh, uh, with, withstanding temptation, his ability to resist temptation, show you? It shows you the discipline of Yosef. It shows you the self-control and discipline are ingredients in making a great person, in making a leader. Because if you can't control your own urges and desires, how are you going to manage and control 
uh, a, a country? How are you going to how are you going to be able to lead others if you can't lead yourself? If you're not able to submit yourself to the dictates of principle because your instincts overwhelm you, then how can you be in a position of uh, being able to provide guidance and leadership to others? And so this. Uh, is a, uh, a commentary in a way on a broad theme of the stories of Yosef and Yehuda, that it takes Yehuda much longer really to achieve the heights of leadership uh, that Yosef achieves very, very quickly, relatively speaking in his life. What is the secret to that really that Ibn Ezra is telling you? He's telling you that the secret to that was his discipline, his self-control his ability not to fall victim to the temptations of the moment, but to keep uh, higher principles in mind uh, throughout and to stay committed to, uh, to values that were greater than the pressure of his instincts. And that just demonstrates to you how the Ibn Ezra is looking at the whole saga of Yehuda. And now, you know, you can even take that a step further and say, uh, Reuven, why was Reuven out of the picture in terms of being a leader uh, of Am Yisrael? And you can trace it back maybe to his indiscretions as well, his impulsivity. We know that the Torah identifies the impulsivity of, Yos of, of Reuven and, and the impetuousness of Reuven as a cause for his downfall. So the Ibn Ezra with a few words, basically, rather than walk you through letter by letter, word by word, he gives you a framework through which you can now unpack, unfold, and deepen your understanding of whole sections of the Torah. He does this in a few places. Um, in other places, he, uh, you know, he'll, he, when he talks about uh, Bil'am and Balak, he gives a kind of a little preview about what kind of a person Bil'am was, that Bil'am was really a charlatan, that he, he was able to, using his sophisticated advanced knowledge, he was able to predict things about the future, not prophetically, just because he had greater insight than other people. And then he would act as if his curses or his blessings were what was actually causing those events to happen, when in reality, he was just smarter than everybody around him. And he was able to see and uh, see ahead, uh, see further ahead into the future than other people, just based on his superior powers of reasoning. And the fact that unlike them, <clears throat> he wasn't a believer in the occult or in magical forces or in superstitions. So rather than using his knowledge for uh, to benefit mankind, uh, he used it in order to, uh, to uh, aggrandize himself and, uh, and to uh, benefit and to materially uh, benefit himself. And this is why the Chazal, of course, distinguished, they, 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 they contrast him with Avraham Avinu, two people who had such superior understanding of reality, they towered over the people of their, uh, of their generation, of the other people in their generation, and yet one used it for good, Avraham Avinu, and the other one used it for, uh, for bad, for, uh, for his own selfish motives to satisfy his own desires, that was Bil'am. So there's, there's a whole line of, uh, of many, many Midrashim that, that, uh, that basically uh, fall in line with that same theme. But the Ibn Ezra, just by telling you the kind of a person Bil'am is, he sets you up for being able to read the story through a certain lens, to see what the theme is, to see the general idea, the fundamental principle of uh, that the story is meant to embody or to convey. And this, in my, you know, in my, my sense, my, my intuition for the difference really between 
uh, the Sephardic and the Ashkenazi approach, this is, you can look at it as a, you can look at it just in terms of the surface and say, well, Ashkenazi uh, commentators, especially Rashi, tends to comment on every word and elaborate on every word. And you kind of, if you read Chumash Rashi, it's very hard. They teach kids Chumash Rashi, every word Rashi, every Pasuk Rashi. They actually oftentimes lose the flow of the Pesukim. Because there's so much Rashi mixed in with the Psukim that they forget how one Pasuk connects to the next or they forget how one word connected to the next because they're so busy trying to unpack each comment of Rashi. But that's, a, that's a, uh, an incidental feature of Rashi, of the fact that every word um, has a comment. Um, but the underlying difference is that the Sephardic uh, methodology is really emerges from a different approach to what the purpose of studying Tanakh is in general, which is the purpose of studying Tanakh in the mind of the, uh, the Sephardic Chachamim is in order to gain uh, understanding of certain broad underlying ideas because they saw the study of Torah as one, as one component of a general endeavor of reaching knowledge of God, reaching knowledge of truth and knowledge of God. And therefore the question is, how does this story bring me to a greater Yediyat Hashem? How does this story bring me to a greater Ahavat Hashem? I need to understand the principles that are um, hidden beneath the story. And then I've really accessed what the story is trying to teach me and I can integrate the story. This is the key thing. Once you understand the story this way as really the story of Yudan Yosef is really um, reflecting certain ideas about character and leadership and what it means to be a leader who is a, a principled leader and how that requires discipline and self-control and so on. Or you look at Bil'am and you see how knowledge can either be a weapon that's or, or a, 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 a means for manipulating people or it can be a means of educating and liberating people from their, uh, uh, from their circumstances of ignorance. You, that's a broad theme that interconnects with so many other themes and mitzvot and stories that now you have opened up a whole new uh, uh, sort of vista of, uh, of uh, a perspective on, on Torah and on mitzvot that you didn't have before. It unlocks a whole new uh, world of ideas as opposed to the micro approach where each word you're trying to find a significance in each word. But at the end of the day, if you want to know, well, what did Rashi think was the basic theme or the underlying idea of the story? It's very hard to know. It's very hard to tell. Whereas the Sephardic Chachamim usually signal it. They usually say it one way or another, whether it's the Ramban, who again, obviously has a very different approach, let's say, than the Rambam. We know that they have different approaches. Ibn Ezra, Radak, these are Chachamim that had different approaches and different, uh, uh, different ideas sometimes that uh, guided their understanding of Torah or that they espoused or that they taught. But the key is that they, they articulate a general vision and within that general vision, they want to place these, the story, the mitzvah, whatever they're discussing. They have a big picture. I call it big picture Judaism. That's why I always call Sephardic Judaism is big picture Judaism. And you see that even the approach of halakha, which we're not going to get into today, but the approach of halakha to, to, to halakha among the Sephardim is always to codify it, to see how everything fits together. I don't want to get lost in the details. If I focus too much on the details and the pilpul of individual details separate 
separate from the totality, I'll eventually lose the thread. I'll lose the sense of what the framework is. I lose that big picture perspective. So I need to make sure that I have everything synthesized together, simplified, consolidated, integrated, so I see the big picture at the end of the day, instead of being lost or drowned in a sea of detail that uh, of disconnected or only loosely related detail. Um, and that's what can happen in halacha as well. So that's why the Svaradim always were trying to seek an integrating principle, whether it be in halacha. That's why all the codifiers of halacha were always Svaradim. All of the philosophers uh, until, let's say, the 20th century, maybe the 19th, all of the philosophers of Judaism were Svaradim because they were seeking the big picture that would unify the different ideas, give purpose and direction and a sense of, uh, uh, of mission and a sense of, uh, uh, of broad perspective to, to Torah and mitzvot. So this is the, uh, what I think is, the, is the, um, the underlying cause of the difference in methodology. The methodology, the methodological difference is symptomatic of an underlying uh, conceptual difference or theoretical difference um, that, that yields these different approaches. But I'm, I'm not, again, I, I don't have the ability to, uh, to comment on what Rashi actually thought. And I think that studying Rashi is useful, especially because he brings Midrashim that you might otherwise miss. And if you have the tools to understand Midrash, it really is a fantastic addition to your, and a deepening of your understanding of the text. When it's used properly and it's understood properly, it's unbelievably eye-opening, the Midrashim. But uh, when it becomes a distraction from the text, which it often does, because we get so caught up in the Midrash and this Pasuk and that Pasuk and another Pasuk, that we, we forget that the purpose of the Midrashim is to illuminate the bigger picture of the story. And I'm not saying that's what Rashi intended. I'm saying that's how we end up um, being affected sometimes by the way that his commentary presents the Midrashim and the different points, as too many points, it becomes overwhelming, uh, that we lose that big picture, and that's the danger. So to turn to an example um, that hopefully will, uh, it's a little bit of a controversial example. I don't know if it will be controversial for this group. I don't know this group so well, um, but, uh, and, and it may be familiar to some of you already. But it's, it might be, you know, once it was brought to my attention, I immediately said, yeah, that's the best, that's the best example to use. And uh, what we're going to look at is um, the beginning of Parashat Vayera. Now, this is very famous for being a difficult, uh, a difficult, can everyone see this, I hope? Um, a difficult uh, uh, parashat. This is, of course, talking about Avraham Avinu. He's just had his brit milah just moments ago. Uh, now he is sitting at the tent. He's sitting in the, at the heat of the day at the door of his tent in Elone Mamre. And so it sounds like he's about to have a prophetic vision because it says that the Lord appeared to him. My favorite translation of the word Hashem is the eternal because Yud Ke Vav Ke is really Aya Oveviye. I like the old translation of the eternal that they used to use in some of the English. Uh, translations because I find it to really capture what uh, close as close as possible what what it means. Um, in any case, so he lifted his eyes and he looked, and there were three men standing over him. We're not going to be able to read every pasuk here. This is the main problem that every single one of the commentaries gets stuck on. 
and has to offer a resolution for. Because in Pasuk, uh, in Pasuk Aleph, the first Pasuk, it says God appeared to uh, Avram, and we accept, expect Avram to hear a communication from God, but we are sorely disappointed because in the next Pasuk, it says he lifted his eyes and saw three men coming, and we know that three men is obviously not the same as Hashem, so now we're a little bit confused, okay? Now there's a wealth of different ways that this can be interpreted, and pretty much every possible interpretation is offered by one or another commentator. What does Rashi say? Rashi divides off Pasuk Aleph over here from everything else. He says, Hashem appeared to Avram Avinu in order to basically make him feel better after his Brit Milah. And then he saw three men coming by and he went and took care of them. And the whole thing with Hashem is like over already. You know, was that, that was, it doesn't have any bearing on what goes on with these three men over here. It's two different things entirely. That's the way that uh, Rashi says. Or Ralph Bag has a very creative thing. We know that a little bit later, Hashem is going to have a conversation with Abraham about the fate of Sodom. So the way that, that, that Ralph Bag has it is that Hashem is going, appears to Abraham and he's about to talk to him about Sodom. But in parentheses is this entire story about these three men that come, these travelers that Abraham goes and he prepares for them a, a feast and they spend time and they tell him about how his, about Sarah is going to have a child and so on. And then Hashem talks to him about Sodom. In other words, it's all in parentheses, according to the Ralbag. That's another interesting way to basically cordon off the Hashem appeared to Avraham from Avraham lifting his eyes and seeing the three men, because that's very problematic. And of course, it doesn't even, it's not even worth mentioning. And nobody on this, uh, on this conversation is going to even consider some kind of Christological interpretation that the three men is the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost or some, something ridiculous like that. But believe me, that, that, that idea has been suggested too, obviously not by people who are members of our tribe, okay? Now, the, 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 what does, the, what does uh, uh, the Rambam say about this? So the Rambam says something a bit controversial in, uh, in the Moran of Uchim. And... Uh, what he says is, uh, I think I, I think I pulled it up here. Yeah. What he says in the Moran of Uchim is he says, anytime Hashem appears to somebody, obviously this is a, uh, a prophetic vision. So he says, So according to, uh, he quotes the Midrash of Rabbi Chiyah, in other words, the Torah is telling you a general thing that Hashem spoke to Avram, that God appeared to Avram. Then it tells you what did that appearance look like? In other words, the whole conversation between Avram and the Malachim or, and the three men. It is the prophetic vision. Okay, so, so he's, he's explaining the details, but the main point is that the whole thing is a prophetic vision. Okay, and then he goes on to the example of Yaakov wrestling with the angel, which I guess we could have just as easily used, but it's not as troublesome as this one. Okay, there were more people who would follow the Rambam in saying that the wrestling with the Malach was a dream than would follow the Rambam with saying that this whole elaborate description of Avram Avinu uh, 
waiting on these three people is a dream, okay? They, because the, the dream of Yaakov is a one night thing. And the main problem with saying it's a dream is that he's limping in the morning. Okay, sometimes a person pulls a muscle in a dream, could happen. Right, so it's not the it's not the end of the world kind of a, a, a of a problem. But here, these these people, first of all, have a whole long conversation with Avram. First of all, he prepares a meal for them, and they sit down and they have a meal together, and they uh, and they tell him the prophetic uh, uh, that that his wife is going to have a uh, a baby, and then of course Sarah hears it and she laughs. Okay, there's elaborate detail about exactly what they served at the meal. They served three seim of kemach solet. And they were, you know, made into uh, cakes and they served meat and they served all kinds of stuff. And, uh, and then, of course, we know that Avram Avinu, uh, that, that Sarah laughs at the uh, prospect of having a child. Hashem criticizes her for that. Then Avram has the whole discussion about Sidom. The, the men lead, look out at Sidom. Avram walks them out. That's here in Pasuk Tedzayin. I, I apologize. I'm summarizing. Otherwise, I'll be here all night, obviously, or for you guys all afternoon for some of you and for some of you into the night. Okay, so as he, he sees the people leaving, he walks with them and then he has the conversation about Sodom. And then what happens? Two of those three Malachim end up at the house of Lot, right? And at the house of Lot, Lot also brings them into his home. There's a lot to say here. Maybe we'll get to it about the difference between the way Lot welcomes the guests and the way Abraham does, but he welcomes them as well. And there's a whole, and, and he makes them food. And of course he runs out eventually from Sodom and so on. Right, so all of this detail is a, the, the question: Is where does the dream end, and where does it start? Where does it end? Because it's like, uh, how is this possible? Right. So, who is the famous person who talks about this and is the most critical? And I, I want to bring this to your attention because I think it's a, it's a great thing to two commentators that I feel like everybody should have exposure to and should use. You don't have to agree with their interpretations because maybe you're more of a Maimonidean or whatever, it doesn't matter, right? But the Ramban and the Abarbanel. The Ramban and the Abarbanel are excellent for one reason that they share in common, which is they ask the best questions. They ask the best questions. And really, if you can't answer their questions, you need to realize that you don't have a full understanding. Okay, they, they ask questions that many times we occur to us, but we're afraid to ask them because we think that we must be missing something or they occur to us, but not in as fully formulated and as clearly articulated a manner as these great uh, commentators uh, provide for us. So I, I recommend reading them, even if you're going to disagree, read the Ramban's critiques of the Rambam, read the, the Abarbanel. Here, the Abarbanel actually interesting in the Moran of Uchim, defends the Rambam's interpretation, although in the end, he disagrees with it. He says there was one point where he couldn't follow the Rambam, and therefore, in the end, he, uh, he decided not to endorse the Rambam's interpretation, but he defends him against every question of the Rambam along the way in his commentary on the Moran of Uchim. But we're not going to get to that's way too long for us. But let's take a look at what the Ramban says here. That's what's so nifty about the safari. You just click on the side and you are in another thing. Now, the Ramban, of course, is particularly perturbed by this interpretation of the Ramban, of Rambam and goes so far as to say that it's prohibited to ever hear it. Of course, despite that, he goes into a lot of detail describing it. Now, he, uh, you can make of that what you wish, but the, uh, the point is what he says is, he quotes what the Rambam says in the Moran of Uchim, Right, 
right? So how was it this mar'eh? How did it go? So he, he quotes the Rambam, basically, and what the Rambam said. And then he says, um, after quoting it, he says that, uh, so he says, according to him, so I did not really make any food, right? And Abraham didn't make any meat. And Sarah didn't really laugh. Right, the whole thing is a dream. Vimken, and here's the here's the thing that that maybe bothers everybody a little bit, but they can't put it into words. That's a that's a pasuk actually. But he's, the point is that this this dream is just like has a bunch of random details in it, like false dreams that have all kinds of crazy things that we know that we dream at night and they don't make any sense. Right, so he says. What's the benefit of showing Avram a vision where he gets hamburgers, right, steak ready for some guests and his wife is making bread? Right? It doesn't make sense. Right? And he says the same thing. He talks about the thing with Yaakov Avinu as well. And then he says, I'm skipping a little bit. Back to our story. You're going to have to say the same thing about Lot. So he didn't really, the, the angels didn't really come to his house and he didn't really bake them matzah, right? The whole thing was a, was a dream. Right? And if you're, what are you going to say? That Lot was having a prophecy. So how did the people of Sodom see the angels, right? In other words, according to the Rambam that everyone sees an angel, they're having a prophetic vision. So how did the people of Sodom see the angels? Okay, it's not a bad question. How did the people of Sodom know people came to the house if they didn't really come to the house because it's really a, pro a prophetic vision, right? There aren't really people there. How are the people of Sodom going to surround Lot's house and start banging on the door? How do they know, right? So, they, so he says, um, and also, right, it says, uh, everything was vimakol marot nevuato. Shalot, Yevayito Malachim, etc. All the things that happened to the whole thing that happened was just a dream. So that what happens if the whole story with Lot is just a dream? So then Lot That means that Lot actually stayed in Sdom. <laughs> so meaning he never left because the whole thing was only a dream. So really he should have been dead then. Right? So the Ramban is actually right about this, but we're gonna get we're gonna get a little bit more into detail. It says the Rambam can only explain it by basically saying that these things just happen by chance. Okay, meaning that not by chance, but meaning that they happened, but that what's what's being described in the story is not literal. And everything that is just, but everything that's described in the psukim is just a vision. These all these words contradict the the, the psukim. It's forbidden to hear them. Certainly, it's prohibited to believe them. Why he then recorded all these details in his commentary? We don't know. He thinks it's prohibited to hear it, but he just told it to us. Okay. Now, then he goes on with a whole other thing about um, about malachim and his solution to the problem is a solution that is very non maimonidean that malachim can take on a physical uh, appearance and so on. I don't want to go into the Ramban's interpretation right now, only because we're focusing on the Rambam, no disrespect to the Ramban. Well, we want to just focus on what he gives us in terms of the Rambam, is he gives us the questions everyone can ask, which are, if this is really just a prophecy, does that mean nothing actually occurred here or something actually did occur? And if it's a prophecy, what is the benefit or the what advantage do we gain 
from all of these details that are provided to us that seem totally superfluous about what Avram Avinu was serving for lunch in his dream. Very bizarre. What's the necessity of having this kind of information? Now, we should know that the Rambam actually talks about something similar to this in the very beginning of the Moran of Uchim, which is where he talks about, uh, where he talks about um, in general, the idea of a mashal. Um, let me see if I can go back to Moran of Uchim itself. Take this away, maybe. And we'll take me back. I'm not sure how to get all the way back to the top. Let's see. I could just do it the old fashioned way and just go back all the way. Sometimes I don't know how to trace myself back. Um, and basically what we can, we can see that the Rambam, actually this is one of the principles that the Rambam says is super important in terms of understanding Mishalim in general. Uh, that, that whenever there's a Mashal, a person should not assume that every detail is significant. So, uh, and this is something that many people have difficulty with uh, in uh, one second. It's in the introduction actually, I'm pretty sure where he says that um, when a person, and he gives examples of it, he gives an example of uh, uh, one of a mashal where every detail does have significance. For example, the sulam, the ladder of Yaakov, where every detail mentioned in the Torah has significance. And then another example from Mishlei about the man who's walking by and the adulterous woman entices him in Mishlei. Uh, where it describes all these details about the nighttime and the bedspreads and all the details she says about her husband and why he's away and he's coming back and what she put on the bed and all this, all the details about the affair between the man and the woman that's about to happen that's being criticized in the book of Mishlei, right? He says, The main point of that whole mashal, that whole episode with the adulterous woman is that we should steer clear of the enticement of the physical pleasures, right? The details are just there to give substance to the mashal, to give the allegory some flesh and bone to hang on. Otherwise it would just be an abstract statement. It wouldn't be something that catches the imagination and that catches the senses and that communicates to us the way that we need it to. It needs to be concrete. And so this is the idea that the Rambam uses that sometimes the mashal is uh, it needs to be, um, every component of it has an idea behind it. And other times, not every component in a mashal has to have an idea behind it. Sometimes a mashal can have components that are um, extraneous. Or I'll give you an example of like in Yosef's dream about the sun, the moon, and the stars. So uh, uh, when Yosef has that dream, and of course, everyone criticizes him, uh, his father even criticizes him and says, are you saying that I and your mother and your brothers will bow down to you, right? And the way that a lot of the commentaries interpret that is that how could Yosef have had a dream that his mother would bow down to him when his mother was deceased, okay? So it's, so the, the, so one possibility is that he was really thinking of not his own mother, but he was thinking of Leah or someone else. But another possibility is that that one element of the dream just reflected his own psychological wish that he wished his mother would still be alive. The rest of the dream was the main content that he was going to be in a position of power. There could still be a detail of the dream that was a reflection of something else. But what the Rambam is saying here is that the that not every detail in a mashal is necessarily part of the ideational content of the mashal. It can be there in order to concretize the idea. 
You can't concretize the idea non-specifically. Okay. Once you move to make something concrete, you have to be specific. How, you know, there's a quantity of flour that's going to be seen in the dream. There's a quantity of meat that's going to be seen in the dream. There are specific things being served and said and done in a dream. It doesn't happen in the abstract. Once you're dealing even with a prophetic vision, if it's working through imagination and sensory modalities, then it has to be concrete and it has to be specific. That's what the Rambam is saying. It doesn't necessarily mean that every component is going to be part of the essence. But how does the Rambam understand this? And let's Let's get to the real, the real thing, which is the Rambam is insistent that this is a Marais Nevoah and that this actually didn't happen. So what did happen then? What was the purpose of it then? Okay, how does the Rambam understand it? He's not just, he says it's a sod. It's a really fundamental thing. Why is it so fundamental? What is it that's so, uh, that's so important here that the Rambam wants to convey to us? That the Rambam is, is telling you that this story of Vaira is essentially about Avraham Avinu gaining a new insight, a new understanding of something. It's primarily about the understanding that Abraham Avinu is gaining and that he must gain before he becomes the father of Yitzchak, before he begins to establish the nation uh, that is going to uh, issue forth from him. He needs to have a certain understanding. And that understanding is an understanding that includes, number one, why he's chosen to be the father of this great nation. Number two, why Lot is not chosen to be the heir of Abraham Avinu. And number three, why nevertheless Lot is spared the fate of Saddam. Okay, these are the ideas in the Nevoah of Abraham. By the way, the one thing is that Lot is definitely not a Navi and uh, the people of, of Saddam are definitely not Nevi'im either. Right? According to the Rambam, the whole thing is a Nevoah of Abraham Avinu. Meaning he is... So what does that mean? That means basically, to put it in a very silly way, Lot and his daughters went out to Home Depot. They went out to, uh, uh, to, the, to, to shopping and they came back and Saddam was destroyed. The point isn't how they got out. The point is why they got out in a divine plan. And the reason they got out, now we can look more closely at what we see. Avram Avinu, when he sees the guests, mobilizes his entire family to do chesed and tzedek for the guests. He brings them in, he takes care of their needs, he prepares a lavish meal, and he, and he is galvanizing his entire family around this purpose. He runs out to greet the guests. Not only does he run out to greet the guests, he escorts them out when they're done eating. In other words, he is all about taking care of the other. He is all about addressing the needs of the person whom he sees uh, requires his attention. And therefore, and his entire family is also recruited in this mission. That's, the, that's what Avraham Avinu's uh, uh, philosophy is. And it's a philosophy that lives in his home. So when he's dreaming, he's dreaming, this Mar-Envois is showing him, this is what, is, this is what he would do. And what would Sarah think if she knew that, that she would never think that Hashem would bend the laws of nature in order to, or that even could or would bend the laws of nature in order to uh, provide them with a child at such an advanced age? Because they would never think of themselves. They weren't people who thought of themselves. They were people who thought only about using whatever kochot they had, whatever ability they had to serve God. 
and to take care of his, his creation. They weren't interested in the creation bending to serve them. That's what made them great. And so then when Hashem reveals to Avram about Sodom being destroyed, because it embodies the opposite of that, it's a place which is corrupt, unjust, evil, selfish people, okay? Avram Avinu questions the judgment, not because he's praying. That's one of the things people interpreted as a tefillah. It's not a tefillah because a person doesn't pray with the word if. You don't pray on hypotheticals. What if there were 45 people? What if there were 30 people? That's not a prayer. A prayer is you just say, please spare them. And you see what happens. You don't give different numbers and try to gamble and try to negotiate rather and, and, and uh, haggle with God about the number of people it takes to save the city, especially when you don't know how many righteous people there are or aren't in the city. So what's the point of that whole dialogue is Avraham Avinu is trying to understand how God uh, makes his, you know, meets out judgment, how God formulates and implements judgment of mankind. That's the whole idea. And Avraham Avinu, we know, must have been a person who had a kesher, he had a connection to the people of Sodom. How do we know that? Because as soon as Sodom is destroyed, Avraham Avinu moves away because he no longer, he was trying to reach them. He was trying to teach them. That was the audience that he was gearing his educational efforts towards. And that's and after the, the war of the three of the four kings versus the five kings, Avraham Avinu becomes friends with the Melech Sedom in back in Parashat Lech Lecha. And we assume that if for Avraham Avinu to be friends with somebody means to try to teach them, to try to educate them, bring them closer to God. He was working on trying to make Sodom a respectable society. So God says, How can I hide from Avraham what I'm going to do that Sodom is going to be destroyed? Why was Sodom destroyed? Was it a miracle? No, most likely what happened in Sodom was a natural disaster. And they have all kinds of different theories about what exactly took place there. But the point is that they weren't saved from it. Okay, Lot was saved from it. Why was Lot saved from it? Because Lot imitates the Hachnasat Orchim of Avraham Avinu. Okay? He imitates it, but it's not complete. How can you see that it's not complete? First of all, Lot sits, also he's sitting, just like Avraham Avinu was sitting. He only gets up when they're right in front of him. It says, Lot saw and stood up to greet them and bowed to them. He didn't run after them. If they had walked by, he wouldn't have chased them. It was because they were standing right there. And then he forces them to come in. He insists that they come in. But as soon as they come in, what does he make for them? He doesn't make for them an elaborate feast. There's no meat. We don't even see any of his family. He doesn't recruit his family. He just makes matzah. It would be like if a person took like a TV dinner. I don't think those things exist anymore. Like some kind of like microwave thing. He put in the microwave and he brought it out to the guests. Not even close to Avram. Why? Because his family is nowhere to be found. His family is not involved, right? So Lot is kind of like imitating the ways of Avraham Avinu, but more as a sense of he has an obligation or he has a feeling of guilt or an idiosyncrasy that he follows the derech of Avraham Avinu. But it's not something that he's taught to his children. It's not something that he's been able to impress upon his family. And we see it even further that when he tells, look at the interesting irony that when Hashem, when the, when the Malachim tell Sarah, that, she's, that God is going to make a miracle and she's going to get a child, she laughs at it. Okay, why does she laugh? Because she thinks it's ridiculous. Why would God do that for me? When Lot tells his sons-in-law that God is going to judge them for being evil, they laugh. They say, oh, he's, being, he's joking. That's ridiculous. The old man is making up stuff. Why do they laugh at that? Because the idea 
that God would hold them responsible and accountable for something is a joke to them. Exactly the opposite of Sarai Menu. Sarai Menu is thinking, why would God bend the rules for me? God is all, you know, God is, is so much greater. Why would God bend the rules for me? Whereas Lot's family is thinking, why would God ever hold me accountable? Why would the rules apply to me? You know, it's totally the opposite. And in the end, when they run away, we see also incidentally, the matzah piece is beautiful if you're looking at Midrashim, because Chazal, Rashi quotes the Chazal that say Pesach haya. He made matzah for the Malachim because it was Pesach. What does it mean it was, it was Pesach? If you look at the story of Lot, you see it's a mini Pesach. It's somebody in a corrupt society who escapes. You know, he's not quite there yet in his spiritual development, just like the Jewish people were not quite there yet, but enough to be able to make a break with, the, with Sodom. And we even see the same language, the word Vayit Mama, that he hesitated, is the same word that the Torah uses in describing the Jews leaving Mitzrayim. They weren't able to hesitate. They weren't able to, uh, to, to delay. So we see that Lot is going through a mini Pesach of his own, leaving Mitzrayim. It's a beautiful, uh, he's leaving Sodom. The Jewish people would leave Mitzrayim, but it, it's like a microcosm of, of Pesach in a way because of Zechut Avot. Uh, Lot leaves because it says, because Hashem remembered Avram, and because Lot in some way partook of the teachings of Avram and embodied them or internalized them to some extent, therefore he was able to uh, be spared. What does it say about his wife? She looked behind and she becomes, right, here is the, the laughing part, Kim Tzachik. There's no question that all of this linguistic parallels between the things that Lot does and the things that Avram does are not by accident, you know? And so then you have, when they run away, his wife looks behind her and becomes Nitziv Melach. Now this should be a... Uh, you know, to somebody like the Rambam or anybody following that school of thought, that, that kind of a pasuk, his wife looked behind and became a pillar of salt, kind of points to the idea that this is not happening in the natural world, okay? But let's, let's even put that aside for a second. In the Rambam's view that this is all a dream, what does that mean about his wife? Where was his wife when the, when the, when, when the, when the guests came? Where was his wife when, I, when, when Lot was, uh, was addressing, interacting with, hearing the reports of the, of the angels and so on? Where was she? she? She seems to be a character who hasn't decided. She's on both sides of the fence, right? And that's actually what the, um, that's actually what the Midrashim say about her, that when, that in front of Lot, she would, she would be, you know, she would go along with his silly, you know, stuff, but behind his back, she would go around and cause him trouble. She would go ask for salt from the neighbors and tip them off that he was having guests over and things like that. Meaning to say the Midrashim are trying to show you exactly what really the text shows you, which is that his wife was on the fence. She wasn't sure. Does she want to go? Does she want to stay? So at the end, she looks back. And because she looks back, she becomes a pillar of salt. But what does looking back mean? You look back at a place that you have a yearning for, you have a longing for, you have an attachment to it. The idea was she wasn't sure, am I with Lot and wanting to be more like an Abrahamic personality on some level? Or am I with the people of Sodom? She couldn't decide. And at the moment of truth, she looked back. The looking back was a sign that she still had an attachment to the way of life of Sodom, and she didn't want to be with uh, with Lot. Uh, she didn't fully subscribe to his uh, his his way of life, and we see that she's on the fence the whole time. So all of this, okay, and then of course Lot, you know, has the whole relationship with his daughters, which is another piece. But uh, the the main reason that I that I uh, in the morning Avram, you know, 
looks out and he sees that you know that that Sodom was destroyed, right? That's what it says. Um, it says Vayashkem Avram Baboker Elamakom Asher Amad Shamfnei Hashem. Avram gets up in the morning. He goes to the same place where he stood before God, and he sees Sodom and Amorah. That now it's all smoke. It's all gone up in smoke. Okay. Again, you could say there's another indication that there we're, we're talking about a dream that he had. We're talking about a nevuah. Doesn't have to be. Doesn't have to be. But it, you know, because uh, then again, the malachim came to Sodom in the evening, so Avram went to bed and whatever. But the idea that this was a prophetic vision, it means to say that the purpose was to teach Avram Avinu why he's chosen. And really the psukim say, um, when Hashem is speaking to Avram about his challenging of the Sodom decision, what does Hashem say? He says, uh, am I going to hide from Avram what I'm going to do? Avram is going to be this great nation. All the nations of the world will be blessed through him because I know him that he's going to teach at Banav He's going to teach his children and his household after him. They're going to follow the way of God to do charity and justice. So that Hashem can bring all the blessing to Avram that he spoke of him. In other words, what it's, the idea is that Hashem is saying, why am I choosing Avram? Why is he a part of this whole process? Because he is the one who's going to take the principles and knowledge of God and make it a reality in his family, make, build a nation based on this knowledge of God. Lot is not going to be able to do that. He couldn't even get his own wife to be part of the program. He couldn't even get his own family to, 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 to reach a level of Yediyat Hashem. But Avram Avinu has mobilized his entire family. In other words, the Nevu'ah of Avram Avinu here, according to the way the Rambam is reading it, is a presentation of an understanding of why Avram has been selected to be the father of the nation of Israel. And of course, the next part of the Torah is going to be um, you know, the next major event in his life is going to be where he, uh, you know, where he uh, has uh, Yitzchak. That's what's coming up uh, towards the, the end of the parasha. He's going to have Yitzchak. But the point is that he had to have this understanding as, uh, you know, as a further breakthrough after his Brit Milah, a further breakthrough in the reason and the purpose and, and, and the foundation upon which he's supposed to build his family and upon which ultimately the nation of Israel is going to be built. So this is how the Rambam reads the Psukim. Now, why is it so difficult for us? Because we read a story and we want to believe the story happened because to us, material things are more real than ideas. So when we hear that this is just really ideas that Abraham was being presented with, and it was just a dream, and it didn't really happen in the physical world, that to us seems like something less. But in reality, there's no difference or really ideas are more real than physical things because the physical event that happened, they had a steak or they, uh, they, they, had, um, they had bread is just a material event at a particular place in time that its significance is over the moment that, uh, you know, a second later, whereas ideas are eternal. So the ideas are expressed through a material base of a dream but the main point is that Avraham Avinu is about to, uh, is, is coming to an understanding of why God has chosen him, despite the fact, despite Sarah Imenu's objection that she's not worthy of it and that they're not worthy of it, and despite all of the other obstacles and uh, hurdles in the way, and why Lot is second best, so to speak. But yet he was saved from Sodom, meaning he went on a day trip with his two daughters, 
and uh, the the whole drama of Sodom, of them surrounding the house and banging on the house and his wife turning into a pillar of salt, all of that is just to illustrate to us what the reason why Sodom met the fate that they did, the reason why Lot was spared because he actually had some of the spirit of Abraham Avinu in him, and the reason why his wife wasn't spared and why he had to start over in his family life. That's, the, uh, that's what the Nivois is trying to tell you. So you can get into, well, what really happened, didn't happen, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter from the perspective of a person who's seeking chuchma from the Torah. doesn't matter because ideas are what it's trying to teach you, not whether Lot actually had people banging on his door and he had to run, or Lot really just went out shopping that day, or he went to Meron for Lagba Omer and he, uh, you know, and, and, and he came back and his, his whole town was destroyed. It doesn't matter. The fact is that uh, he, uh, you know, that he was saved. For whatever, it, the main thing is why he was saved, not how, not how. See, so so that's, that's how the Rambam is teaching you. Now, it's, it's hard for people to get that because they want to take the stories, but one of the great things about the Rambam's way of reading the Torah is that he focuses in on the ideas of the story. So what I said in the beginning was what's really characteristic of the Sephardic approach to Tanakh is that it seeks to, it seeks the underlying ideas and how to integrate and synthesize those ideas with other ideas of the Torah. So you have a comprehensive grasp of what the Torah and the mitzvot are all about. This is a perfect example. It's an extreme example, but it's a perfect example of doing just that, seeking the ideas underlying the story rather than focusing on the details of the story itself. Because the details of the story itself, the Rambam will say, are just there to enable you to grasp that underlying idea, okay? So that's, uh, I, I know this was a little controversial, but uh, hopefully it didn't rattle anybody too much. And if anybody has questions, I think that's that's basically what I wanted to share. Wow, thank you so much, Racham. That was very insightful. Um, we'll take some questions now. So if anyone has any comments, questions, they can raise their hands and we'll take you from there. Um, I'll start off with how does Rambam um, approach the principle that we have of en mikra yotel mide pshuto. En mikra yotel mide pshuto just has to do with the difference between a uh, a drash and a uh, and 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 the meaning of words in the pasuk. So sometimes a person will, in other words, if the rabbis take uh, uh, you know uh, take something like the classic example, the Rambam brings in perush the perush la mishnayot, where he wants to illustrate drash is it says, you know, that, a per, that it's when it's talking about a soldier going out to war, that he should bring with him a stick that he can dig a hole in the ground. And if he has to relieve himself for his bodily needs, so he can dig a hole in the ground and then cover it up. And it says that he should have, you know, on top of his weapons, it says, al he should put it on with his weapons. In addition to weapons, he should also have a stick to, uh, to dig in the ground. So he says, So the Chazal said, You should have a stick to put in your ear. If someone's saying, Put a stick in your ear so you don't hear it. Right? So he says, Obviously, that's not what the Pasuk is talking about. Right? Obviously, that's, a, that's using the Pasuk as a rhetorical device to teach a nice moral lesson, which is true in and of itself, that a person should avoid listening to Lashonara, but is certainly not the meaning of the words. So here, the meaning of the words still is the question is, did this happen in a physical way? Or is this a dream that uh, is meant to teach certain ideas? Events obviously happened. Lot obviously didn't perish in Sodom and so on. 
but the way they happened is not necessarily being recorded. What's being recorded is how Avram Avinu understood the divine plan as playing itself out in his life and in Lot's life. Makes sense, thank you. Okay, we have a question in the chat from Nadav um, who's asking, so from a Sephardic perspective, which are the commentaries that in your opinion make sense to focus on when studying Tanakh? A Tanakh, okay, so I, in, in Chumash, look, I, like I said, I like all the commentaries, but um, I, each one of them has its, uh, its challenges and its advantages. So for example, the Ibn Ezra is a very difficult commentary to read. You really have to know a lot of Dikduk and have a lot of experience with his uh, modes of expression in order to uh, follow what he says. So he can be a real challenge to read. The Ramban is, is a, even though his methodology has a lot in common with the Sephardic methodology, his, um, his ideas oftentimes are Kabbalistic ideas. So sometimes the, the Ramban is a very mixed bag because the Ramban, I love the Ramban actually. I think sometimes his shot in, the, in reading is incredible, but his, uh, a lot of times it's intermingled with Kabbalistic ideas and it's hard for, for that side. So I personally, if I were to choose one commentary that I would recommend that gives you a kind of a Rambamic reading of Tanakh. So in Chumash, what I would recommend is really the Ralbag, even though some of the Ralbag's ideas are not commensurate with the Rambam and actually are contradictory to the Rambam, but he gives you an approach to reading the stories that is an approach that is Rambamic in its, uh, in its attempt to mine from the story its fundamental principles or mine from the mitzvot their fundamental principles. In, ten, in the rest of Nach, you have the Radak, who is a great kind of a, uh, um, uh, he's a he has a, uh, a tr he's traditionalist enough that um, he won't get you uh, labeled as a heretic, but he's uh, Maimonidean enough that his approach is a very, um, you know, is very oriented towards understanding the underlying uh, ideas in the big picture. So I think the Radak is amazing on Tanakh. Uh, in Chumash, the, there's only a Radak on Breshit. We have not found, if there is uh, a Radak on the rest of, of Chumash, we, we don't have it. So I, I, I would say the Ralbag is probably the best to start with as a sort of a, the closest you can get to a Maimonidean uh, commentary on the Torah. We have an anonymous question, which is, why do you think Sephardim and Ashkenazim have these differences in methodology? Uh, I can only speculate, but uh, in general, my theory is that the, um, is that the, there's a difference, uh, and I spoke about this in one of the shiurim that I gave many years ago with, uh, at the Hillel of, um, of uh, University of Maryland, which is uh, on YouTube, it's called uh, Sephardic Judaism, Sephardic Tradition, the Judaism of the Future, um, the original version. The second version has bad lighting. So we, we, we did a video version, it wasn't as good. The audio version was better. Um, but basically what I, what I argue there is that um, the Ashkenazi approach is uh, because, the, because the Sephardim in general were more integrated with a general culture and therefore had a more general sense of a big picture uh, understanding of the world, they saw the Torah and the mitzvot as a part of a broader quest for wisdom that you know, sort of interacted with and integrated with many other disciplines. Whereas the Ashkenazim had a more limited exposure to, and they were living in the dark ages, mainly the, uh, you know, the Ashkenazi early authorities. 
So their only study was the study of Torah. Their only study was the study of, uh, and you could see it in the way that they, it's, it's very noteworthy that um, it's an interesting phenomenon that almost all of the Pirushim on, on Talmud are by Ashkenazim. It's opposite of, the, of Tanakh. Meaning in Tanakh, it's almost all Sephardim, and in, 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 uh, in Talmud, it's almost all Ashkenazim. Whereas the Sephardim tried to codify the, the halakha, meaning the, uh, the Ashkenazim, since their main intellectual pastime and, and endeavor, the way that they, um, they invested all of their intellectual energy in the world of Torah and only Torah. So for them, therefore, every detail was the focus that they, uh, they, that they invested in. And that's why they have so much pilpul and so much back and forth. And also the reason why their halakha evolved to be so strict because they had so many different interpretations and different opinions. And then they would never want to take the lenient opinion because that would be, you know, that would be scary to them. So they would take a more strict opinion and then there would be more strictures placed upon that. So their halakha also evolved that way. Whereas the Sfaradim were always trying to stop the evolution of halakha and say, wait a second, let's just simplify this, pare it down to one opinion that we're going to follow on each halakha. Okay, there are opinions to the right of this and to the left of this, but this is the way we're going to go to make it a, a streamlined system. And that was something that the Sfaradim did. So in Talmud, they didn't engage as much in this back and forth of the, uh, the pilpulistic or the even the, uh, uh, the Rambam says some pretty harsh things about it. He said, I left behind that uh, waste of time a long time ago. You know, he said in one of his letters, but some of the things he says are scandalous about learning of Talmud. Some are nice and some are scandalous. It depends which ones you look at. Um, he, uh, but he, he says uh, dismissive things about getting the, the shakla vitarya. In other words, the back and forth about all the details. He said, that is not really the ultimate. That's kind of bring you to knowledge of God. So where the, the Svaradim, they were interested in the big picture and how this view, the values and ideas of the Torah integrate with, interact with, um, can be synthesized with, can help us deepen our understanding of even more general uh, knowledge. So therefore, they, their eye was always on the Tanakh, whereas the Ashkenazim were, saw their whole intellectual enterprise as being restricted to the realm of Torah. So therefore, they invested their time. And that's why you see that even the Shulchan Aruch, Shulchan Aruch, Bet Yosef said, I want to make a very simple code. It's called the Shulchan Aruch. It's going to be just uh, in every 30 days, you can review this. The, uh, then there are now hundreds of commentaries on the Shulchan Aruch. And almost everyone is, uh, almost everyone is, uh, is by an Ashkenazi. Right, and the, uh, the that the, because that's that was where their intellectual energy went into the details of the halacha and and the uh, and the expansion of halacha. Whereas the Sfaradim were always trying to contract the halacha down, the Ashkenazim were always developing it further and expanding it because that was their intellectual creativity was invested in that. The Sfaradim in, invested their intellectual creativity in the bigger picture. I'm not saying either one is bad. I'm not saying that the Ashkenazi is bad. I'm saying it's a different. There, there are there is a beauty. And and a great uh, and a great value to the work that all of the chachamim did. It's just that the energies of the Ashkenazim were invested more in the microcosm of halacha, and and the uh, and the uh, and the Sfaradim invested their creative energies more in the big picture of understanding the broader ideas and how the ideas of Torah integrated with uh, even further wisdom. And that's why, like even the Ramchal, even a, a late Sephardic thinker, Italian, like the Ramchal says that a person who reaches the ultimate levels of knowledge in Torah, he has a book called Derech Chochmah, which is not often learned. People learn Derech Hashem, but they don't learn Derech Chochmah. 
which is where he lays out his plan for how a person should learn and what they should learn. And his, his, his approach to learning all of the, everything basically, but all, when you get to the area of halakha, he starts to simplify things tremendously and say that you shouldn't get lost in all the details because only a judge needs to know every detail of every halakha, of, every, uh, of all of that. You need to see the big picture. And, and, and he says, ultimately, when you reach the highest level of knowledge, you're going to be studying the Tanakh and the Midrashim because those are the gateway to really Yediyat Hashem. That's what the Ramchal says. So that, and I think that's an understanding also even among the Mekubalim. I'm not a Mekubal. I wasn't Zochet to be a Mekubal. But the uh, but even the mikubalim, what is the Zohar? It's basically a midrash on the Tanakh, or on the Torah, basically. I mean that that was an understanding that I think ultimately uh, all of the Chachmei Israel uh, shared. That they uh, that 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 was the ultimate repository of divine wisdom is going to be at the high the ultimate levels of of comprehending the the Tanakh. Wow. Um, out of sensitivity for time, we're going to ask one last question, which is by Ben in the chat. Uh, according to Arambam, is there a guiding principle to distinguishing what he considers literal or not? Yeah, so, I mean, he says, basically, the reason why he takes this, the, what signifies to him that this is not literal is that it opens with the words that Hashem appeared to Avram. And in general, he, he extends that principle to even in, into things that are, it would, would, would be very scandalous. And there's some debate about where he, you know, where he might draw the line. But basically, if it says Hashem appeared to a certain Navi, he takes the subsequent text as being a prophecy, not as being what happened in real time. So, for example, if you look at the Nevi'im like Hoshea and others, Yecheskel, who were told by God to do bizarre behaviors, you know, do really strange behaviors, the Rambam says, it said in the beginning, the word of Hashem came to me and he told me to do this and I did it. All of that, walk around naked, marry a prostitute, all those strange things that he told these Nevi'im to do. He said that was all just in the prophetic vision. There's some who say Ibn Kaspi who sort of follows a, a even extreme, more extreme version of the Rambam's uh, uh, ideas sometimes says that the whole book of Yonah is basically just a vision of Yonah. And, uh, and, and because it says in the beginning, that means it's a prophecy. So that, and, and that's generally, that's how the Rambam takes it whenever it says uh, that, that something is a communication from God to the prophet, he'll take that as a prophetic vision, even if there's action in the ensuing uh, paragraphs. That's, that's basically his rule. But you have to remember, just to, to just emphasize again, uh, as a last point, true and literal are not the same thing. And I think that's important to, to emphasize. Something can be absolutely true and not literal. Okay? Something can be literal and not true, but something can be true and not literal. A midrash can have a true idea. It's a 100% true. It's a 1,000% true, but it's not literal. A pasuk could be a metaphor and be 100% true in the idea that's contained in the metaphor. So literal and true are not the same. When we say not literal, we don't mean in some way less true. Right. Okay. Okay. Uh, thank you so much, everyone, for coming. And Chacham, it was a pleasure and privilege to have you with us. Hopefully, we're going to have you uh, many more times in the future. Um, and thank you so much for staying up so late in Israel uh, for us. Um, it's more so... a concern of how I'm going to get up tomorrow morning, not tonight. <laughs> Um, so thank you. So thank you for sacrificing your morning for us. Uh, <laughs> and uh, stay tuned, everyone, for all other incredible content we're putting out. And also uh, the Rav's website was shared in the chat box. So you, everyone feel free to check that out. 
and uh, have a great night, everyone. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thank you, Hakam. Thank you so much.